Welcome to the SBIR Capture Podcast, where we interview successful small businesses and subject matter experts on their tactics and strategies for winning contracts with the federal government that provide funding that help you, the small business owner, develop your cutting edge technology or solution. Now, today, although technically it's episode two, I really consider this episode one. We did have an intro where I gave a brief overview, but today we have Fraser Kitchell. He's a co-founder and CEO of KEF Robotics. In this discussion, we're going to walk through his innovative technology, which is centered around autonomous flight. So you're going to hear how the SBIR program helped fuel the development work that they did. Now, a lot of businesses are using SBIR and STTR, which basically means government funding, funding that the government will give to small businesses to help develop your, whether it's a proof of concept or a demonstration, prototype. There are a lot of different areas we can work in here, but it's a great way of developing your solution without having to give away part of your business via venture capital, seed funding, angel investors, that type of thing. So I wanted to start with this episode because Frazier and KEF Robotics have some really interesting ways of increasing the odds of your winning a SBIR, STTR contract. Now, we help tons of clients on, on my side, on my consulting side with this. In fact, this is more often than not, this is the first contract that they win with the government. So if you think about it, you're getting funding to develop your usually dual purpose technology, meaning used for the government and used for commercial. You're doing so without giving part of your business away. You're also getting, if it's your first contract, you're getting past performance, which is critically important, selling to the government. And you're also able to use SBIR to sole source contract with the government. I could spend six hours talking just about sole source contracts, but any way you can give the government to put you on contract, especially if they can do it without competition, is going to be a boon for your business. Now, this episode originally appeared on our other podcast, DoD Contract Academy, which is much broader in scope. That helps all businesses uh, with strategies and tactics to sell to the government. This is focused on SBIR. So this is, if you have a technological solution that you just have an idea or a patent and you want to develop it, or maybe you have something you've already built, you want to modify that, maybe you're in the middle of that somewhere. This is potentially for you. So first episode, we're going to talk to Fraser Kitchell. Hope you enjoy it. And hey, in the comments section, if there's anything you want to hear specific to SBIR, STTR, federal grants, just leave it in the comments, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's in the podcast platform you're listening to. And you know we take those comments and that's how we generate a lot of our episodes on the other podcasts. We're going to do the same on this one. So please, be we're brand new. Leave a review. Leave a rating. Now on to Fraser Kitchell and KEF Robotics. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, Ricky here with DOD Contract Academy. And today I'm very pleased to bring you Fraser Kitchell. From, uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of KEF Robotics. Hey, Fraser, how's it going? Good. How are you? Can't complain. Can't complain. I know we just talked about you wearing a hat versus me wearing a hat and, you know, really cold where you are. So I uh, just kind of uh, uh, sharing uh, guys with shaved heads have, I guess, uh, some similar. Hey, that's uh, kind <laughs> called my head shaved. I'm just a balding guy and I'm in the first floor of a warehouse in Pittsburgh. It's 
something like 17 degrees out today. So, you know, they say men uh, that go uh, bald have more testosterone than men that don't. So that's I what think, I have better leadership quality. So that's I think I'm about that a lot. <laughs> I would send that article out actually every unit I was in, in the uh, air force, just to kind of get a rise out of people. But um, whether it's true or not, I, I can't speak to it, but Hey, no, it's, it's great. Uh, all kidding aside, it's great having you on here. And I know just from a brief conversation before, uh, you know, Brian Stream, who we've had on the podcast. Uh, so, and you guys are, when I look at your contract, you have some similar success stories and, uh, and, and some great wins. So, why don't we start with what is KEF Robotics? What, what problem are you guys uh, trying to solve and, and what, what are you doing in the world? Okay, great. Yeah, so I, I usually describe KEF at a high level as we're trying to use cameras to fly aircraft. So mm-hmm. we're an autonomy developer. We develop software to fly other people's aircraft using mm-hmm. specifically cameras. So um, that's different than some approaches. You know, we're we're a passive sensor um, we're kind of like that. We're replacing the eyes of a pilot, and we're trying to move some of the intelligence of a pilot on board the aircraft. So, so that's kind of our niche. Um, we were founded four years ago. I'm a co-founder and the CEO of the business, mm-hmm. and um, it's our our general thesis is that aerial autonomy is uh, very hard to develop. Even even large companies like Primes will struggle to develop it, even if they can build great aircraft. The autonomy problem is quite different, right? And then we also believe that cameras, if you can extract data from them, are a really great sensor to use. So um, they're challenging to use because they actually bring in so much data. And then you have to interpret it with algorithms. That's that's challenging. But that's kind of where we live as a company. Okay. Um, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we've got kind of the snapshot of what you guys are doing. So let's take it back, right? So, you know, I've got your, at least your LinkedIn profile up in front of me here. So, I mean, it looks like you have a a really uh, great past history, Carnegie Mellon. Maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, coming out of school um, and your experience, um, you know, in the world and and what led you to create uh, KEF. Yeah, absolutely. So, so KEF, we have our name because it's Carrie, Eric, and Frazier. They're just the first initials of the three co-founders names. And um, prior to founding our business in, in December of 2018, I think it was, um, we all worked at a research and development group within a space robotics company. And for that space robotics company, we were working on algorithms to develop, to, well, to allow spacecraft to land on the moon or on unmapped bodies of the solar system. So, hmm. um, so that's through that, we actually started using drones and kind of using cameras as well. Prior to that business, I always tell people I'm not an engineer by training and I'm not a roboticist. And uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon for grad school to study energy science. And I discovered, if you know Carnegie Mellon, you know it's a robotics and artificial intelligence hub. Mm -hmm. And I discovered robotics while I was walking down a hallway and I saw a poster about um, like saying Carnegie Mellon's going to the moon. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll just drop in on that class for a day. And I knew within five minutes, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing going forward. Like I'm oh, forget, awesome. forget about energy. I'm going to be working with roboticists and this is what I want to do. I want to have like an adventure basically with my career. Yeah. Um, so just going back for, you know, listeners, uh, you know, just to inform people, like I was biologist before that. So I, I okay. got a biology undergrad degree. Um, so I was in the sciences I'd worked in, uh, for a mechanical contractor doing energy systems for buildings. So I was working with engineers 
And uh, my role in KEF is to manage our engineering team and, and try and guide our strategy and make sure we have a good product market fit. Okay. So none of my educational background kind of led to that. It's just sort of something I found my way into. Okay, fantastic. You know, it's funny uh, just listening to you talk about like removing the pilot from uh, the aircraft. As a former navigator, uh, that was the first half of my Air Force career. I'm all about taking the pilots out of those aircraft. I watched huh. pilots, so many pilots try to kill me over those uh, over those years that uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this. So all my pilot buddies that will send me emails after they uh, they listen to that. But no, yeah, what, you're, what you're doing what you're doing is amazing, and it, there's a huge need for this, right? And there are a lot of different efforts right now, um, autonomy related efforts, especially when we're talking about uh, flying aircraft and. I don't know if you get into uh, swarm technology or, or any of that stuff that, that we've been hearing about. But as we start moving forward, you, so you you have this kind of epiphany with uh, with robotics, right? And um, and then eventually you you start uh, KEF, and, and you guys all it sounds like you guys all work together. Um, you know, when you made the transition, did you start did you start the business before you left? Did you start it afterwards, and then just go full full force or? Yeah, we we uh we worked together for something like four years at that prior business, and we had a lot of really cool successes. We um the biggest probably accomplishment I point to is we won a NASA Tipping Point Award, which was a ten million dollar award to develop terrain relative navigation to land mm -hmm. a spacecraft on the moon. So, if you know how we land spacecraft on the moon, typically. You just sort of know where you are in orbit and you start firing your thrusters and you land and you have this massive kind of ellipse that you might actually land in because you're not doing much navigation or guidance as you go down to the surface. Right. So we were developing techniques so you could use a camera and you could look at the ground. And if you don't have GPS around the moon, you can you can use that camera to reestablish your position as you descend. Sure. So we could take that uh, that error and bring it down to like the size of a football field from the size of like a couple kilometers long. Oh, that's awesome. And so have, um, like terrain mapping feature, is that kind of- Yeah, like, so, you, so basically we, we know exactly what the surface of the moon looks like. The moon's actually pretty easy to do this on because there's no clouds, there's no right. weathering, the lighting's very predictable years in advance. Mm -hmm. um, so, and and here's, um, so, so basically we were developing those algorithms and the way you develop those algorithms on earth as a low budget, you know, space- robotics company is you is you find an analog to a spacecraft and you fly it a bunch and you develop the algorithms so the closest out analog the cheapest analog is to fly a drone mm -hmm. and we're um so we're using cameras we're flying drones we're turning the gps off because we're not going to have gps on the on the moon right and we're like well let's see who's doing the best work in this field and as we kind of um came to study it and know it more we're like well you think we might be doing some of the best work in this field and um, long story short, as you know, you can imagine when three people leave a company, there's a little bit of friction there. So we had some friction with our upper management. Sure. Uh, I was actually on the upper management in that company, but um, we we're like, why are we doing this for somebody else? Let's go do our own thing and not have this thing kind of sitting above us. So um, we started, um, the first thing we did was we're like, okay, well, we're a small business. Nobody knows us yet. We've got to get on the map. So we entered into a Lockheed Martin sponsored competition called Alpha Pilot. Okay. Which I'll, you could point your readers to, but um, long story short is that was highly publicized. Um, we qualified in first place going up against all these other teams in the world as a team of three and I can't code. So it was really two software developers and that got us on the map. We were in the New York times before we were a hundred days old and oh, awesome. we just like, 
we we parlayed that into our first DOD contracts with special operations, actually with Softworks. Okay, um, awesome. And, and then we're off and running. So now we support uh, Softworks, the Air Force, SOCOM, DITRA, Army, um, a whole bunch of DOD partners. Yeah, no, I mean, I can see you get a lot of uh, contracts here. So getting into, so you have a, kind of a non-traditional, I guess most companies, uh, small businesses don't, don't get the... Uh, the benefit of kind of being in the New York Times and all, a lot of the publicity and stuff uh, going into it. How was your experience um, getting your first DOD contract, you know, with Softworks? Is that something you found and you applied for? Did they reach out to you? Uh, how did that work? Oh, man. So it's like it's like being in the right place at the right time and just getting a little bit lucky and also just sticking our necks out. So um, we uh, knew that our technology was mostly applicable to the DOD. We don't really actually, even to this day, believe in the commercial drone market. Okay. Um, we we don't see a lot of people using autonomous drones. We don't think the FAA is going to let you do that. So mm -hmm. um, we uh, somehow found out about Special Operations Command. You know, none of us are DOD background. Mm -hmm. We heard that the best conference was something called SOFIC, which happens in May, which uh, that was about six months after our founding. Mm -hmm. So um, we reached out to a few people before we went down there got some meetings lined up, uh, showed up and just started telling our story. And um, actually I went on a tour of Softworks. So Softworks, if you're, if your listeners don't know, it's like a very open kind of nonprofit that's aligned with SOCOM, mm -hmm. very easy to do business with. And they gave, uh, so the, the head of Softworks gave me a tour. And at the end I said, can I get five minutes of your time? I told him what we were working on. And he said, write me a white paper. And uh, we wrote him too. We sent him over the weekend. Oh, that's awesome. And something like six weeks later, we were on contract. Okay. So, so, and it was, it's not an SBIR. It was a direct mm -hmm. contract from Softworks. And we just happened to be developing a tech that they had been trying to field. Um, they tried to find commercial providers for, for years. Right. They had done a big down select. This was before KEF was even founded. Uh-huh. One of the teams that they down selected to dropped out. And so we just you know we're in the right place at the right time, signed that contract, and now we're on contract number four with them. That is very unusual. Very <laughs> so, unusual. So yeah. for everyone listening, don't expect to be on contract that fast with the government. Um no. But I will say special ops, like within acquisitions. So I spent half my career in acquisitions, the, the latter half. Um, traditional acquisitions, as you probably went on to discover typically takes a long time, uh, at least yeah. a lot compared to commercial timelines. But the special operations units, and, and we work very closely with them on rapid uh, like prototype development technology, different things like that, LPI, LPD, whatever, whatever uh, you know, the, the thing of the day is, but they can rapidly put something on contract. And, and of course, they should be able to, right? Because you have a guy out in the field that he needs something right now, they need support, right? So they are very good about finding what they want, getting what they want and getting it on yeah. contract quickly it's unusual it's it's very um it's 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 specialized and unique within uh dod contracting so that's awesome that that was your your first experience with that so now i did see some sbir contracts under your uh under your belt in the uh in the federal system here so uh when did uh that come into play so i think our first sbir was through afworks and this is another like Every one of your listeners who's trying to be a small business should be talking to Afworks is my yeah. 
my opinion, and Softworks. Yeah. So Affworks, they release a, a open topic. They select, you know, they're looking for non-traditionals. They give you low dollars to get your foot in the door with the Air Force. So we um, probably, along with literally 400 other companies, want to um, phase one SBIR from Affworks probably at month nine, 10 of our business. Okay. Uh, and obviously, aerial autonomy, you know, we're somewhat aligned with the Air Force, even though we're talking about very small aircraft versus their right. large aircraft. And then so um, from that phase one, we ended up getting a lot of meetings with people in the Air Force, and we got a phase two. Um, the phase twos are large. I think ours was 1.5 million, which for us, it was like that that could support our whole team for two years at that point. Yeah. And then um, we've now collected some SBIRs from Army Applications Lab, which mm -hmm. I believe is under Futures Command. So that's a, another fast moving group within the Army. Right. Amazing turnaround time from submission to selection mm -hmm. there too. Something like 10 days. Yeah. The award took longer. Um, we have an SBIR with ChemBio Defense, which is under the Army. That's a phase one. Uh, mm -hmm. That took quite a long time to close. That's more like traditional SBIR. Probably took sure. nine months from selection to award. Mm -hmm. Um. And then we we actually do have some commercial contracts now as well. But um, generally, we've just stepped our way through the SBIR process. We we knew it well from writing NASA SBIRs at our old company. Okay. So we kind of had Carrie, Eric, and I are very dialed into how you write a compelling SBIR and how you get to know the TPOC, the technical point of contact, before you write. You know, so you don't you don't send anything in blind. You don't hire professional writers. You, yeah. you do it organically. Um, so yeah, we probably a little bit more experience than most young companies had there. Um, but I still feel like if you know the rules of the SBIR world, you can be highly successful. You can have a 50, 60% win rate. You uh you bring up something I think that's extremely important. And I'm not sure that we've talked about it on the on the podcast before, which is when you actually start getting into the solicitation writing, um, there there's a bunch of businesses out there that you could hire. And that's what a lot of businesses want to do. They want to go out and they want to hire someone to write the solicitation for them because they feel like either they don't understand the process or they don't have the time. But in what you just alluded to and what I've seen, whether it's with my clients or on the Air Force side, on the government side, is that if you if you have to write a proposal, whether it's for a SIBR or anything else, nobody understands the technology and your company better than your company. So a proposal writer, and if you've done this before, you don't need them, but what I think a proposal writer can do is maybe say, hey, this is the structure of a proposal. This is what a compliance matrix looks like. But even if you hire somebody, if you want a, if you want a product that makes sense at all, you're putting in almost the same amount of time because you still have to write out all of the technical work. You have to be involved with the pricing. You have to be involved with that process. Um, so I think you're right. I think writing it yourself, my advice is always write it yourself and then maybe get someone, if you need someone to review it, just to make sure that it, you know, hits, you know, you understand the fire clauses and things like that. That's great. But, um, yeah. <clears throat> so, so you, you mentioned that. So writing it yourself is, uh, writing a compelling proposal, uh, is, is what you said. And you mentioned, uh, talking with a TPOC beforehand, I'm not sure we just, we've discussed that on uh, the podcast before. Maybe you could tell me why you would do that, who they are, and why that is important. Yeah, so it's our general belief that um, almost every SBIR is written with, with I, I hate to even say this, but 
this is just my belief, so I, I will say it. So a lot of times the the, the, the TPOC, the technical point of contact, mm-hmm. has been made aware of a technology need from somebody inside the government who's probably been, uh, has some teams already in mind that they know can provide that solution. So it's, it's our opinion that oftentimes those solicitations are written, and unless you're sort of the one that seeded that idea in the minds of the, the people on the other side of the fence that you, you don't get to talk to, you don't have a really good chance to win the SBIR. So a really good way, and you know, company, you're all about minimizing your effort or like really streamlining your effort. So you can't, you can't submit 20 proposals. You, you, your business would go under, you you have to, you have to submit a few and hopefully win most of them. So you should be immediately when a topic's released, finding out who's on that, who's associated with that selection or that kind of guidance of those proposals to the selection committee and you need to be talking with them verbally uh, on day one, hopefully, about what you're doing. And you should be reading between the lines of the feedback they give you, which they can't give you explicit feedback. But, hmm. you know, am I going to be able to write a compelling proposal here? Yeah. And so if you're not t- even talking to that person, then you're, you're probably not going to win. Um, you're just going to be an anonymous company um, that's, you know, developing a tech that they, they know nothing about. Yeah. Um, so that is, that is really interesting. You know, we talked a lot about the, um, maybe the official uh, way that, you know, of, uh, writing a proposal based on a solicitation. And what I tell everyone listening and I tell my clients is you got to spend, you got to live in the market research phase. So I tell them, don't even respond to a solicitation. You know, typically you're looking for something like a request for information, source of thought, some way of finding out about that opportunity ahead of time. And then you're in that office. And you're talking with a program manager and you're talking with them so they know who your company is so you can shape yeah. it. And so they know who you are, right? And I mean, yeah. I've said before, like, I didn't always get to hire the company that I wanted to as a program manager, you know, but I almost always knew what company I wanted to hire. Just to speak to your point about Cibber, right? So even though I typically talk about regular acquisitions, with the Cibber process, it's it's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, you're it's it's a little bit different, but in the in sense that the Cibber, the SBIR office is typically a different office than you know the users or the you know a, a traditional acquisition shop. But all of those topics come from somewhere. So when yeah. when the government wants to do something with autonomous flight or vertical uh, lift uh, aircraft, right? Somebody somebody in the government gave them that. Um, that technology request. And, you know, different government agencies want Cibber dollars to fund what they're doing. So they all kind of compete for, uh, you know, what these topics are going to be. So you're right. I, I think that's something people need to think about is you're right. There's, there's, there's definitely companies talking with the user agencies about what they have. And a lot of that's going to shape, you know, what they're requesting. So now you have that SBIR office and they're aware of that. So that that's actually really great advice is going in there, talking with them, letting them know. And you could, and like you said, you're probably going to be able to get a sense of whether or not that is even worth you applying for. Cause they, they probably will. Yeah. They'll probably give you enough between the lines for you to understand if you're competitive or not. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you, tell you guys a story um, that we had recently. So we had a, we had an air force or we saw an air force SBIR come out mm-hmm. that looked like it had been, it, it couldn't have been written for KEF, like more, it, like it was almost like we wrote it. Yeah. They wanted a, a company to come in that had a mid TRL technology readiness, technology readiness level um, mm-hmm. capability to do terrain relative navigation they wanted to do a no hardware upgrade of an aircraft. That's what we do. We basically take your existing camera. We make our algorithms run on that. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it had all these specific things that were like, oh, this is, this is great. But we were nervous because we hadn't seeded the topic. And we know there's other teams out there that are competitive. And we're right. like, okay, well, the fact that this came out, like we'll write to it. We did write to it. We wrote a really good proposal and we had a great prime that was going to give us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of free flight time on a oh, range wow. of aircraft, like a really strong proposal in our mind. Yeah. We didn't get selected. Hmm. And we weren't entirely surprised by that because out of all the teams that, you know, KEF, we could write a really compelling thing on paper, but unless they know us, this is still a human to human business. They're not going to stake their million dollars on this unknown team or this small team when they have somebody who's maybe 80% as compelling a proposal, but they're a known commodity. Yep. So it was, it. I mean, that's just one parable, but it kind of brought home to me, like, even if you're the perfect team with the perfect tech, don't expect to win unless you, yeah. unless you've done something. And that doesn't make me upset. Like I want the government to know their winning teams rather than just select it off of a written proposal, because I think that's, you know, you have to be playing the technical game and the business development game to win. Absolutely. Um, you have to be able to organize on all those multiple fronts. So was that a phase one or a phase two? That was a direct to phase two. Okay. Sounds like so with a direct to phase two, just for anyone listening. So I guess one of the big differences is money. Of course, phase one is usually lower dollar. Maybe you owe a tech, you know, a tech write up or something, but you really, if after a phase one, you're looking for someone in the government to sponsor you. And that's one of the requirements for phase two, right? You need to somebody usually in the DOD it would probably be someone at like an 06 level, um, you know, maybe a GS, uh, higher ranking government civilian, but someone that can on the government side that will at least sign uh, a memorandum of understanding saying, hey, we'll, you know, if you're recommending a demo, then maybe they give you a space to do the demo if they're, you know, they, so they might be providing some type of facility or like, you know, some hours to donate to, to what you're doing. Usually it's not funding, but sometimes it is. Um, how has the, um, the process been for you finding sponsors for phase two? So, um, the air force is, I would say pretty easy to break into. Um, one thing the SBI, our office did under AFWorks, which was smart, was they gave you this small dollar phase one, but it was an actual contract. And they mm -hmm. give you, they tell you what to say to the, the people you're reaching out to. They say, right. I have a contract with the Air Force. Can I get 10 minutes of your time to talk about the technology I'm developing to get a letter of support for phase two? Yeah. So, they, so um, for our the, the, the contract that we had that did progress from a phase one to a phase two, we had something like nine meetings in 90 days and uh, actually probably even more than that, probably 15 ish meetings. Okay. Some of those were in DC. Some of those were in Dayton, Ohio. So we're based in Pittsburgh. We, we drove to both those destinations. Some of them were, you know um, this was pre COVID, but some of them were remote meetings. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we ended up having a pretty compelling um, phase two. Um, those letters of support, I imagine were the make or break for us as far as getting um, moving forward. So there is, you know, a somewhat compelling user need that we demonstrated yeah. across. Broad How many did you, did you, so you had more than one sponsor for that? Yeah. So I think all told we had something like four letters of support, um, that, you know, nine people were kind of on board, but actually organizing everybody to get their letter in on time. I think we ended up with four, which okay. was still not bad. The minimum was one at that time. I don't yeah, know. It's probably, probably, one of the more painful parts of the process is now you're getting into the bureaucracy of just just getting a signature from you know somebody can take weeks if not months mm -hmm. of 
exactly getting the right approvals getting it to be on the right person's desk and they want to make a change and it goes back and forth so uh well that no that's that's great and that's something for people to think about too is maybe hey don't just stop stop when you have that uh that letter of support or that mou you can go out and get letters of support in addition to that where people are, are going to sponsor your technology and um and it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of of Brian Stream's interview where he's flying to people's retirement ceremonies and like going all over the place, getting getting his sponsors and everything. So just not stopping with kind of the minimum and to keep going. And it's worth it in the end, especially for a phase two um, to help you yeah. to what you're what you're doing. Uh, Brian Stream, if your viewers haven't seen that podcast, they should go back and watch it because that guy is better at getting access to people than anybody I've ever met. I mean, he was, he is so good at finding email addresses for Air Force people. His reach is really impressive and he's really figured that part of it out. Yeah. When I, uh, I get a lot of questions about that episode and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people bring it up and he, there's part of the interview, if you go and check it out where he talks about, cause he, he was doing part of this during COVID and he talks about just renting. It sounded like renting a little cottage on a, a lake in New Hampshire, locking himself in there and just like go into town on LinkedIn and all the other methods he had to, to find the right people. And it was just his job to find sponsors and to find, and he, like I said, he was, he was doing the work and obviously yeah. you guys did the work too. Um, so it, it's really, uh, it's really incredible. And I think it's a good example of, you know, what it takes to, to get the right people to sponsor you on something like that. But I mean, look, you're saying, hey, you could be 50, 60 percent successful. Yeah. And that is not the odds if you if no. you look at all the people. Right. The odds are actually, you know, much, much lower than that. You don't just win by making a submission. You really got to put the work in. Yeah, I think I roughly we think blind odds, 10 percent. So that means you have to write 10 proposals to win one. And if you're talking phase ones, yeah. you're writing 10 proposals to make one hundred twenty five thousand bucks. That doesn't. That's like twelve and a half thousand bucks average per proposal. That's just barely going to cover your costs. Yeah. So yeah, you, yeah. I would I would say ten percent is being generous actually, unless unless you're approaching it from a, a position of I'm going to put the work in. I'm not just winging this and slapping it together last minute, which you yeah. guys really aren't. Um, and especially now you add to that, reach out to the TPOC, right, or somebody at the office that's going to be reviewing these. And by the way, and I think another good reason to do that is not only are they getting to know your company and you're getting to know some of the background to see if you're competitive, but they are also potentially going to give you some information that is not included in the solicitation. Mm -hmm. And government solicitations are notorious for not giving you the whole picture. Um, because look, everyone's busy, right? So you, if you're writing a a three or four page uh, solicitation for Sibber or anything else, you're going to get some of it in there, but you might not know the need. So it might, maybe some essential details that you need to know that you need to understand about who the customer really is or who, what they're really, uh, what their objective is, you know, and you yeah. can start including that in your proposal. And now you're really going to be hitting the mark in a place somebody else isn't. Yep. Um, absolutely. Any, not to exhaust the topic, but any other, you know, what, anything else that you think about when you're trying to write that compelling proposal? Yeah. So this might be obvious, um, but commercialization is more and more of a massive, it's a need in the government, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. being more fiscally responsible. You need to have a, and everybody wants dual use technologies because that's how we'll stay competitive and not have this tech, you know, just go to the military and have them fund everything. You're watching cell phones developed by commercial markets. Every other technology that's commercialized 
we're among the world leaders in. If it's not commercialized, we're way behind. So for drones in particular, they want to know how you're going to make money outside the government if you're going to be selling them drone technology. So, you know, from the beginning, the biggest companies we can possibly find that will talk to us for a half hour and provide a letter of support for, you know, our, our general developments for drone autonomy, that's critical. So I can't name names, but I'll just say like very large shipping companies and very large uh, logging companies. And uh, like in, in this current push I'm on right now, I'm reaching out to oil and gas companies. Um, the biggest, the biggest I can find in the U S um, you know, we're trying to get letters of support or even just say, get like talking points from these people that we can say, this is the the market that we're going to be addressing alongside the DOD. So that's, um, that's, that's pretty upfront for most people, but, um, those letters, they can be turned around quickly. You shouldn't be afraid if you're a small business to call up, you know, the, somebody on LinkedIn or shoot them a note. Um, and try to get their their stamp on your approval and your tech as as well. That's that's really great advice. Um, actually, including that with your proposal, not something that yeah. a lot of companies are doing. Um, and you're right, commercialization is extremely important. And we just had an episode on because we've had a lot of companies, especially technology companies, get their start uh, in the SBIR program. Yeah, and probably the biggest complaint or roadblock or, or struggle, I guess uh, I would hear is, you know, Cibber can take you so far. It gets you to a certain point, right? And there are a lot of companies that have won a lot of those type of contracts. And it sounds like you guys have regular contracts as well, kind of keeping you along and, and you know, there's, there's a need. In some cases, it's the the government programs of record and funding hasn't caught up with the technology that's been developed. So a lot of these businesses will get to a certain point and say, okay, now we're funded, we've developed what we developed, but we're really struggling to to find that long-term uh, contract with the government that has the funding because it still needs to be set aside. And that's a process that can take years sometimes with a, with a brand new technology. Uh, yeah. We had a gentleman on that was talking about commercialization. He's like, hey, you know, I've, I've listened to these. And he goes, this is where commercialization is extremely important. He goes, because his take, and, and I'd like to hear what your commentary would be on it, was he looks at Cibber as almost a, a venture capital fund that he could use to develop his technology where he still retains ownership of his business. Um, and just understanding that commercialization and dual use is part of this. He's like, when you get to that point, he said he pivots to commercialization to commercial use. Like now I have the thing, I'm selling it commercially, and I use that stream of revenue to keep me going until the government funding catches up. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that as a as a strategy for a business? I think I look at it the exact same way. Every money, every dollar I can raise from the government is one less dollar I have to raise from private investors. So KEF, you know, I, I I'm always willing to talk. Full disclosure, I can tell you all our numbers if you'd like. So we we the only money we've raised was a friends and family investment round. Um, we did that after we were in that Lockheed Martin competition and after we'd had our first contract. So, you know, we tried to get money and get validation before raising money. Mm-hmm. So, and then I look at it as um actually we found the government to be so fast moving between Softworks, AFWorks, and Army Applications Lab that in my you know, role as CEO, I have to find the cheapest dollars. Um, uh, I look at the government as a better preferable funder to venture capital right now. They're more patient. They're moving just as fast, if not faster. And they don't take ownership of my 
business, our business. Sure. So pretty, pretty obvious call that I should work with them as long as the dollars are flowing quickly. And that's you. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, I see a potential, not valley of death, but a potential valley coming mm. up where we want to wean ourselves off the SBIR process. Not because mm. it hasn't been good to us, but just because we want to grow beyond it, kind of scale sure. beyond it. And um, so in 23, we'll be selling our first software licenses to actual U.S. businesses. Okay. So, so that's that's the model we're going towards is, you know, we sell our software per seat, per, per aircraft. Um, you pay us X thousand dollars for it. And then, you know, the aircraft now has a new performance upgrade that it didn't have before. You can say you can navigate without GPS. Interesting. And is that the same model you're going to use with the government if you want to talk about that? Yeah, it is. Okay. So, um, yeah, to date, um, we've just advanced entirely on research grants. So SBIRs and that type of grant, it's all been, mm-hmm. you know, fund our research, advance the technology. But um, what we're going to shift towards is, you know, not now you don't have to pay us for the development, but you pay us for the software. Right. And then you take that money and we still do our R&D and make the software better and hopefully grow. Um, but that that's the valley we want to get across. And it's going to take us you know, at least three years to get off SBIRs and maybe we never fully do. Yeah. Because we could still use them to fund new advancements in our tech in this key area or that key area and get, you know, kind of like that market validation before we do internal research and development. Mm-hmm. But it would be, you know, not a hundred percent of our revenue. It'd be something like 20, 30% of it. Sure. Yeah, I know. And, and I, I kind of key on that because the licensing model it is a good one for business that's selling to the government and and I won't speak to commercial but I assume it's the same there because it can you know can bring in recurring revenue um maybe it's a a lower cost up front for the government um versus you know buying like an enterprise you know license or inserting something permanently but it also gives them um it gives them access to the benefits of the fact that you are dual use, right? So now you have all of these customers, both defense and you know government defense and commercial, which are putting money into your company. You guys are improving and making the updates to the software. Um, and then the government gets to benefit from a lot of those updates, I would imagine, um, if yeah. it were like some of the other models. And I was in, you know, I saw from the government side what happens if you don't have that, right? So some of the legacy aircraft that I would have to uh, whether I was flying them or whether I was actually in charge of the acquisitions uh, unit supporting them, what would happen is you'd have a software suite that was developed for that system and just for that system. And the problem on the government side is, well, now if we ever need an update, that means the government has to get a contract with this company, pay them to do the update. Then they have to do the update. Then you get it. And then by the time you get it, you might need something else. And it's like that you're constantly playing this game where um, I feel like the benefits better for both the government and the business if you have this con- dual use continuing model, um, and then the licensing model certainly, um, like I said, that can provide you that sustained uh, funding over years. Yeah, your, yeah, your- yeah. And actually, as you were talking there, I was thinking, you know, one of the risks for us going forward is that we're somewhat skeptical of the government's prowess at um, acquiring software. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of like hardware is what we understand. And they want that software to be embedded on it. So I think they're, you know, we're getting on the GSA schedule now. That's mm-hmm. like a push we're a push we're doing so they can procure it off the shelf. Mm-hmm. But um I think there's some risk there that even though we have a good product, it's hard for them to acquire. So at the same time, we're developing, you know, in some cases for government specific aircraft. 
but often for aircraft that are commercially available that they've purchased. So, you know, we might work through those commercial vendors to kind of package up our software before the government buys it. Sure. And I mean, they do both, right? So, and that's just, I think, needs to be understood going into it. Um, I don't know if you guys have looked at uh, Open Mission Systems um, and UCI. It's something that you may want to take a look at as you move. So Open Mission System just uh, is something I worked on in the government. I'm I'm involved with now to a certain extent uh, when when I'm going to conferences and working with people. And basically what we're talking about is, you know, the government has all these, whether we're talking about aircraft or ground-based systems, right? But you pick, you know, from F-35 to, you know, kind of uh, more of the ancient uh, air uh, aircraft that uh, we've flown, like the B-52 coming to now. But typically, um, an OEM, one of the big defense contractors, would put that aircraft, they'd win the contract, they'd put it together. And if the government wanted to make any change to that system, put your software on, for instance, yep. nope. The OEM, first of all, the OEM doesn't want your software on there. But they own it completely, and to get them to make a change, it took. It's almost like working with another government organization, right? These big companies. It takes time. Maybe it's not as good, and the money is going to cost you know a hundred, not a hundred, but it might cost ten times as much to get a product that's not as good, right? And so what we would see is we'd have these startups and these new technology companies, and I'm in Boston, right? So we're always working with MIT and some of the great great minds around here, and. You know, they have something, we want to put it on a system, can't do it, right? So what OMS does, this is where the Air Force is going, and I think a lot of the other services, uh, where we are going to have an open open systems that the government owns, and it allows um, a company like yours, for instance, to be able to put something together if you follow uh, the parameters that we set forth, that everybody, so we have these consortiums that everyone kind of has agreed on, you know, uh, what that's going to look like. Um, so they can they can build things according to those parameters. Uh, UCI stands for Universal Command and Control, uh, yeah. and essentially it's it's a code you know a code a language that you you can understand. And then so what you put together can communicate with the weapon system and everything else that's connected to it. So yeah. um, it still has a ways to go, but um, you know something like yours, especially especially I would think would want to be at least aware of that of OMS and and where we're going and um, who's using it. So. Yeah, that's that's actually so when as you were talking about it, we we are somewhat familiar with that. Sometimes I've heard the term MOSA, I think since okay. for modular open system architectures, yeah. and maybe that's more army or maybe that's more somewhere else. But but yeah, I mean that's kind of my belief is what should happen is the government should own the interface. Mm-hmm. And if and you should have a competitive market for vendors who can meet the needs of that interface. And if the government just maintains that and they give you, you know, four, you know, here three years down the road, here's what the interface is going to be evolving to. It's kind of like the standards that industries kind of organized around for data transfer and software interfaces. Mm-hmm. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. And then, then yeah, hopefully KEF's the best team and, you know, visual nav, that's what we hope. Yeah. And we can compete against say Lockheed or somebody, you know, a yeah. big company with, you know, cause we have a new approach. Um, or, or like you mentioned earlier, or you could sub to them. Right. So, and, and that yeah. happens too, where, they take a look at you and say, hey, these guys have a great product or solution. And and by the way, they also understand maybe if OMS uh, applies to that or, you know, hey, you guys have the, that understanding as well. So now you're sub to them going in and companies do it both ways. Right. So whether you're subbing to a Lockheed or you're a prime and you're we're just working directly with the government, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um and then I just want to say one thing for anyone listening, when you when you think about the licensing, I think maybe you were alluding to it 
which is sometimes the government doesn't want to buy software licenses because if the government, if, if it's not a program of record and it's not like this funding where, hey, I have five years of funding to put KEF on contract, right? Um, I might have follow funds, right? And this is where, where the government buys a lot of different things, right? So let's say uh, my office has 15 million in fallout funds and I know that KEF's at the top of my list. I need to get this on a certain, maybe whether it's a demo or whether it's on a weapon system or you know whatever, whatever the exact project is. Um, but I might only have that money for this year. I don't know if I'm going to have it next year. So do you want to sell a one-year license? To, are they going to buy a one-year license knowing that they need it or that? But that's where you just, hey, I could sell you a three-year license. I can sell, sell you a yeah. five-year license. So um, sometimes you can get around it that way. But I just want people listening to understand that there are different things that you can do. And there are different problems that you'll encounter if it's if it's a licensing model versus yeah. you know, if you're just coming in on a project. Yep. Cool. We've covered a lot. This has been uh, an amazing episode. I think I think that for anyone going after a cyber contract, especially, they're going to be uh, they got a lot of great tips for you, especially on that proposal writing process. Um, so we, we've talked a lot. What, what's next for you guys? What do you what do you have coming up, and and what um, what do you want people to know about KEF? Um, what's coming up for us in twenty three is that that transition to our first licenses. Um, yeah. So we hope to be doing that October. Q4 of this year. Um, we're doing a ton of demos. We, uh, if you look at our website, we're, we only release like half of our kind of cool stuff on our website, but we're doing a lot of flying at night right now. A lot of fast mm -hmm. flying. Um, yeah, we think we're carving out a really cool niche, um, getting on our real products that hopefully are serving hopefully overseas, yeah. um, pretty soon. So we hope, we hope we're making that, that leap to being a kind of what I would consider a, almost a real business, a real, um, provider of valuable software. Right. No, that that's awesome. And if someone wants to reach out to you, so small business or government, and they want, had a question or just wanted to, to talk to you, what would be a good uh, place to go find you guys? Well, I'll give you my email if that's, if that's uh, okay. I think that's fine at this point. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't have 5 million people listening. So I'll say I respond to our contact us email. So okay. if you write to contact us at kef.robotics.com, those mm -hmm. will come to my inbox and right. we don't get enough email traffic that, that I'll miss many emails. So there's that, there's LinkedIn. I do check LinkedIn at least probably once a week because I'm doing outreach or whatever myself on LinkedIn, even though I don't love it. Um, but yeah, we're a small business. We're easy to get a hold of. Um, cool. Got a good, pretty up-to-date website run by our COO here. Yeah. Uh, so She's doing yeah. great. It looks, it looks like an awesome website. She's and, doing uh, great. I'll, uh, I'll put, she needs a raise by the way. And she does. Uh, yep. Oh, yep. She's actually typing me an email now. Oh, fantastic. Well, Hey, maybe once you get your next contract here, we can, uh, we could get a little extra for, her. um, I'm going to put the email, I'm going to put your website in the show notes so people can uh, just click on that. And then usually I ask, uh, you know, what would you, what would your recommendation be to a small business that's thinking about getting into this, uh, maybe a technology company, but what would you say? Um, stay lean, travel a bunch. Um, don't be afraid of anything All where right. somebody can say is no, you got to get in front of people. You got to stay, you got to keep email, emailing them. Um, in the DOD, you'll get a lot of non-responses and you can't take that personally. You can't think they don't like you. You just have to keep bugging them until they give you some time. That's great advice. That's great advice. Fraser, I really appreciate it. 